Good morning. Recently, I've been re-watching the TV show Band of Brothers, uh, which is uh, celebrating its 20th anniversary, which seems crazy to me because I don't think I'm that old. But apparently, we're getting up there. Uh, if you don't know the show, it's, uh, it chronicles the story of Easy Company, which was a paratrooper infantry company in the 101st Airborne during World War II. And this company fought during D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, and even more uh, during the war. And one of the things that I really learned to appreciate while watching this show, or reading the book by Stephen Ambrose, is the closeness of these men during these incredibly challenging situations that they were in. As Ambrose himself put it as he wrote, he said, They found in combat the closest brotherhood they ever knew. They found selflessness. They found they could love the other guy in their foxhole more than themselves. They found that in war, men who loved life would give their lives for them. These men lived for something. They fought for their country from a sense of duty, but probably more importantly, they fought for each other out of a sense of love. They loved each other, and so they they died for each other. What do we live for? That's the question we're going to look at today. What are we living for in our lives? As we're going to see, Peter calls us to live our lives not for a what, but for someone in particular. He says we need to live our lives for God. Even when we may be going through difficult times, even when we may be struggling, we live for God. For the past six weeks, we've been going through this series, uh, this letter written by the Apostle Peter to this group of Christians, both Jewish and Gentile or non-Jewish Christians. And as a reminder, Peter was one of the earliest followers of Jesus and one of the leaders in the church during the first century. And last week, Rick looked at different qualities that should be lived out by Christians in their daily lives and as well as how best we can share this everyday hope that we have in Jesus. And the last verse that he read from was from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, where it says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So today, we're going to continue directly from that thought as we keep moving through Peter's letter. And I just want to take a quick side note here. Just to explain, like we didn't, if you look in your Bibles, you probably have headers and chapters and verses and everything. And we didn't necessarily break our sermon series by those um, breaks in the text on, in, in your Bibles. Um, although we've been close, we're not exactly there. But you have to remember, though, that these headers, the chapters, the verse markers, they're added long after the Bible was completed um, in, in, in any of these books. One thing I'd recommend that you might get, and one thing that I've, I've had uh, a couple of times, but it's something called a reader's version of the Bible. And what it is, is basically it's a publisher take, goes and strips all of the reference material, all of the headers, everything from the Scripture, and they just present you with the words of Scripture. And I think that this is a, a, 
it's a good way to read scripture because it's the way that it was originally presented. You know, they didn't have reference markers or headers or footers or footnotes or anything like that in the original Greek and everything. But um, it, it makes it less like reading a reference book and more like reading an actual book, um, which I enjoy. So let's go back to the passage. Thank you for my side trip there. Um, but if we go back to the passage, uh, verses uh, 15 and 16, I love these verses, but it talks about we revere Christ. So it means we respect, we admire, we think highly of Christ as Lord. That we always need to be ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect to those who are asking why we have this everyday hope that we have. And through this, we will keep a clear conscience. And even when people speak poorly of us because of our behavior, they they might even be ashamed because of their slander. All right, so now let's move on to our passages for today. We're going to start with verse 17. Peter writes, For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now remember, Peter's writing to a people who, as he writes in 1 Peter 1, 6, In all that you greatly rejoice, though though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So these are people who are going through trials and and suffering grief and, and As they're going through these trials, Peter is writing this to encourage them. He's encouraging them that even if they are suffering, they can find some peace because they are suffering for doing good and not evil. And if we look back to verse 12, Peter's quoting from Psalm 34 when he writes, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter is saying we can rejoice. We can rejoice in our trials. We can rejoice in our suffering for the cause of Christ. And we are able to do this. It's not that it's, that it's easy to go through suffering because it's not. It's not that it's easy to go through trials. Um, but we are able to rejoice because we know that God is with us. And if God is with us, what can anybody do or say to truly harm us? Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Peter knows something about this. In fact, he, he more knows from the negative side of this because he's failed in this aspect. He's the one who failed when he was afraid of what people might do to him and, and he denied being one of Jesus' followers in the courtyard following Jesus' arrest and during his trial. He knows what he's talking about here. He knows what it's like to be afraid in the face of persecution or suffering. How can we have this confidence, though, that makes us rejoice even when we suffer? Well, we we can have it because we know that, that Christ has gone through this as well, that Christ has suffered as well. Peter continues in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. We're not going to go through anything that Christ has not already gone through. Like That's just not possible, and that includes suffering. And he suffered for you, for me, being nailed to a cross, dying for our sins. And then Peter continues in verse 19, After being made alive, 
he went and made proclamation. Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to understand. And to be quite honest, I don't really get it either. You know, Peter talks here, he says, after being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And there's a lot of different interpretations on what this means. They want, they, 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 have different interpretations on who Jesus went and spoke to, on when he spoke to them, on, on where he spoke to them. One uh, interpretation is that Jesus descended into hell to preach the good news to those from Noah's time. Others think that these spirits that Peter's talking about were the fallen angels from Genesis chapter 6. Still others think that Jesus, long before he came to earth as a human, preached repentance through Noah to the people of that generation. There's a pastor I admire when he comes across a passage like this where there are competing things. He says, look, you know, there are smart people who believe this on this side. There are smart people who believe this on this side. You're smart. Do some research. Figure out what you believe. I personally like the way Martin Luther took this passage. Uh, Martin Luther, who is one of the fathers of the Reformation, this is what he said. This is a strange text. And certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So if we're looking for Nick's interpretation, that's it. <laughs> I don't know. I love the shrugging emoji thing. That's, that's me. I'm like, I don't know. While, we're, while trying to figure out what this means is interesting, it's important, we cannot forget the main point of this passage. That's not the main point of this passage. The most important thing for us is that Christ suffered for the sins of the unrighteous in order to bring the unrighteous back to God. And as Peter writes in verse 22, Jesus returned to heaven where he sits in power and authority at God's right hand. And that power and authority is over everything. That's the important part of that passage. And so with that, we can move on to the next passage in chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. It starts with therefore. Therefore, just as we've seen, just as we read, since Christ suffered in his body, Peter tells his readers that they should face their suffering with the same attitude as Jesus. That we should be willing to suffer for what is right rather than what is wrong, rather than doing wrong. And this points back to 1 Peter 3.17, like we just read, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And we have motive for this as well. Peter writes that we do this because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. 
Now, on the face of this, it looks like what Peter's saying here is that if you're suffering for doing what's right, suffering for the sake of Christ, then you are no longer sinning. And I think that we could all agree that that's probably not the right way to read this, because I know some of us have, have gone through some struggles. I know some of us still struggle, and, and, and sin is still a thing in our lives, right? Um, you know, we still struggle with sins. We still struggle with doing things against God's will. One of the best examples of this is the Apostle Paul, who is an example of somebody who suffered a lot for the sake of Christ. And yet he wrote in Romans 7, 18, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So if even the apostle Paul still struggled with things in his sinful nature, then it seems like that may not be the right way to read this passage, that sin is just not a factor in your life anymore. I think the proper way to read this seems to be about somebody's willingness to suffer for doing good. And those who suffer because they obey God, then these people have made a clear break from sin. It's not that sin no longer has any, um, no, no longer has any influence or, or um, struggles in their lives. It's not like they're not going to feel the effects or temptations. It's that sin no longer has control over their lives. They are less and less drawn to the things that are against God's will. And so because of this, Peter writes in verse 2, instead of living for earthly, evil, human desires, this person will now live their life in the will of God alone. Peter continues and explains this in verse 3. For you spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. If you want to live distinctive lives from the rest of the world, then we shouldn't be doing what the rest of the world is doing. That's what Peter's writing here. He says, look, you spent enough time in the past doing what they choose to do. You made that choice. You made those decisions. And what do they do? He gives a list. You know, living in debauchery, which are sexual acts or violence, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, which would be at all these festivals that they would have in the Roman Empire and, and that show a lack of self-control. And then detestable idolatry, which is worshiping other gods or even non-gods, just things. Um, and that's unique to the Judeo-Christian religions to believe that that is detestable. As believers, when you start to say no to the things the world lives, to the way that the world lives, that can be a pretty powerful thing. And it raises eyebrows. Peter writes that pagans, the non-believers, they're surprised when you're not joining in with them on the things that you used to do or the way that they live. And this is especially true if, if you were involved in that kind of stuff beforehand. I remember seeing this kind of change, not just in myself, but in the people that I knew who started following Jesus and started to say no to different things. One example that I could think of with this is, is you know, as everybody knows, I, I, I love the Indianapolis 500. I try and go every year, love the race. And um, the, the, the night before the Indy 500, they would always shut down the road, Georgetown Road, right next to the main straight of the track, and that place turns into Party Central. Um, and, and to my regret, I, w- I would be down there, Party Central, um, and would be down there with a group of people every year. 
And every year there would be, be these people who would be down there and they would set up um, in the middle of the street and they would be preaching repentance through a bullhorn. Basically they're saying, you're all sinners, you're all going to hell, repent. I don't think that's the best way to evangelize, but who knows? Maybe they got some people to come to Christ for that. Well, one of the people in our group, they would uh, always go up to them and they would antagonize them. They would ask different questions to try and trip them up. They would take the little gospel tracts that they uh, were handing out and they'd tear them up and just chuck them, things like that. And at the time, I thought that was hilarious because I was not a believer at the time. Um, one year, though, this guy had started to go to church, and it was at the front end of him starting to truly dedicate his life to Christ, and he went down, we were down there again before the race, the night before, and the people with the bullhorns were there preaching their hell, hellfire and brimstone message, but this guy didn't do anything, like he didn't go up and talk to him, he didn't antagonize them, he did nothing, and and to me, because I, I still wasn't a believer, you know, that confused me. That, that was weird. I was looking forward to the, to the excitement, but it wasn't there. It surprised me, like Peter said. Now, I did not heap abuse on this person. I was just like, hey, what, what are we doing? Don't you want to? He's like, no, I don't. I was like, weird. So I didn't heap abuse on him. But, but when you take a stance... When you take a stance that's so radically different from the world and the way that they think, that could be a possible response, that you're going to have abuse heaped on you. And it is the likely response that a lot of Peter's audience was facing. And even though believers may suffer abuse, they do so with the attitude of Christ because in the end, that could be the reason why non-believers turn to God. Remember what Peter wrote in chapter 2, verse 12? Live such good lives among the pagans. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And he, see, he says something similar in 1 Peter 4, verses 5 and 6, where he says, they're going to have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. These are the people who are heaping abuse. They have to give an account to God. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. All people are going to have to give an account to God who judges both the living and the dead. This is why we preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's that even though there are those who are spiritually dead, they can find life through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Live according to God in regard to the Spirit. We live our lives first and foremost for God, above anything else, above everything else. You know, there are things that are important in our lives, family, friends, other stuff. But most important should be God. Like it should go God, everything else far and away above everything else. And those things in your past, those things that you're not proud of, those sins that you've committed, Peter's telling us to put those behind us, to give no more time to sin. Live for God 
and choose to be different than this world. And so what does this look like in this context? Well, Peter gives his readers a few things about how they can live for God. He begins, though, with a reminder that I think is still very true today in verse 7, where he says, the end of all things is near. Now, I sound like the bullhorn preaching preachers, but, but it's important. Like, they thought that in the first century. We still think this today. I mean, every day, if you look on the news, what are you going to see? You're going to think the world's ending with whatever crisis is the newest crisis today. But it really is true. Like, the end of all things is near. It may not be near, though, the way that we think things are near. Because our perspective is not God's perspective. Peter writes about this in his second letter in the Bible, in 2 Peter 3, 8, where he says, Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And I don't know about you, but I I don't really have a great way to grasp that, to really understand that. Like, we were talking about an infinite being who exists outside of time and who literally created time. Like, that's hard <laughs> to wrap your mind around. What I do know, though, is that even though we may not know when the end of all things is going to happen, it's getting closer every single day. Like, we are on a, a linear march toward that. So, what are we going to do to live for God during that time? as we wait for the Lord's return. And there's a few things that Peter talks about in the rest of this passage. In chapter 7, again, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. If you're going to live on God, you need, or live for God, you need to rely on God. To rely on God means we need to communicate with God, which means we need to pray. And to do that well, we need to be alert. Not just to our own needs, but to the needs of others. The people around us. And we can lift all of those up in prayer to the Father. And we also need to be of sober mind. You should be clear-minded and have self-control. Not like the one who's indulging in the sins listed back in verse 3. All of those sins show a lack of self-control. And when you get stuck in a cycle of sin, that starts to cloud your judgment. It starts to cloud a lot of things in your brain. Think of it as somebody who's inebriated or drunk. You know, you lose inhibitions. You lose self-control. Both of these, the alertness, the clear-mindedness, they should result in prayer. And then, you know, world's coming to an end? Yeah, okay. We're going to be down on our knees. We're going to go to God. We're not going to worry about it. So that's the first thing. And then in verse 8, above all, Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love one another. And Peter is simply just repeating the command that he was given by Jesus as he was preparing for his trial, as Jesus was preparing for his trial and his crucifixion. John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If You love one another. Throughout this series, we've been saying that the Christian life is a countercultural life. Your life should look different than the world. And the way that Jesus teaches us to do that is to show a love for each other that defies explanation. Because it's not just loving each other, it's loving each other as Jesus loved us. And how did he love us? By taking our sins to the cross and the punishment for our sins 
in death. It's a sacrificial love. That's what Jesus did for us. He sacrificed himself for us. Like the men of Easy Company loved each other so much that they would die for each other. That's countercultural. To truly sacrifice for each other, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's different than the, than the way that our current culture is going, which is more and more individualistic. But that should be the norm for us. That should be what's every day. We love one another. And then in verse 9, he writes, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I think this kind of extends off of the previous of loving one another. But offer hospitality. Extend hospitality to your fellow believers. Open your homes, not just your hearts. Whether it be as simple as inviting people over for a meal or hosting a small group or maybe it's something more like helping a family who's in need. I think we've done this fairly well in our church over the years. I I think we really have. But I do get concerned sometimes because I see where the culture is going and I wonder if we as individuals might be drawing inward like the culture. I mean, I remember not much more than 20 years ago during the summer and fall, you would find me, my family, we'd be sitting out on the porch in Indianapolis you know, with all the neighbors just hanging out on the porch. Um, and, And... and I, that's changed a bit. It's changed for us. We don't really do that much anymore. Um, I mean, my parents are in Florida, so maybe they do it down there. I don't know. But it's a lot warmer down there now. But I do think that's changed. I mean, do we know our neighbors? Do we invite them over? Are we hospitable? We also need to be hospitable with this church as well. Welcoming those who come through these doors, even if they don't believe the same things we believe. Because again, that's different than this world. As we grow more divided in this culture, let's be different here. Let's zig when they're zagging. Or we zag when they zig, I don't know. But let's be hospitable. Let's love one another in a way that is distinctive. Last thing can be found in verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. As followers of Jesus, we are indwelt with his Holy Spirit. He lives in us, and he graciously gives us gifts. And it honestly really doesn't matter what gifts you're given. You are to use these gifts to serve others. And through this service, you are revealing God's grace to them. Peter follows this with two examples, and then he ends with basically the whole point that sums up everything. He says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. That's the point. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We do all of these things so that God gets all the praise, not us. God gets it. And it's because, it's all because of and through Jesus Christ that we're able to do these things. And we can't do everything that we want in our limited time here on earth. On average, we're given 77 to 80 years on this planet. The 80 is for the ladies. You know, us men, we don't live as long. 
I'm not even going to say why, because I don't know. But even that, like, that, those are statistics that I got from last year. That's average ex- uh, life expectancy. But, but we're not even guaranteed that, right? Sometimes you get more. Sometimes you get a lot less. But it's what we do in that time that's so important. I mean, you can live for yourself. You can try and bring glory to yourself. You can try to be remembered. But how long are you really going to be remembered for? Maybe a generation or two? Or maybe you do something amazing to be remembered and, and they build a statue for you or they put you down in books. But, I mean, you think about it, really in two to three hundred years, after they find out all the wrong things that you did, they're going to tear down your statue. You can live for yourself, but honestly, it's never going to satisfy you. It's never going to fulfill you. And it's really not going to matter when you're dead. But we can make the decision to live for God. And then in the years that we have left, however many it may be, you can demonstrate, you can show God's love and grace to so many people. We can show them that everyday hope that he gives us. And it's not going to matter to you that you're not going to get any glory from that. Because God will, and he will be praised through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me as we close out today? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, uh, I just thank you. I thank you for just loving us so much that even while we were yet sinners, you died for us and you showed us what true love looks like and it is a sacrificial love and father i pray that you would give in us that same desire to love others to love each other as you loved us that sacrificial love i pray that you would also help us to show that hospitality. I pray that you would help us to use our gifts that you have so graciously given us wisely and to serve others. Most of all, I just pray that that we would come together rather than growing apart. That, that, That we would stand for the most important thing, and that's for you, Lord. Father, we, uh, we just thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that sacrifice, that sacrificial love that took him to the cross. And we thank you that he conquered death. And it is to him be all power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close?